You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. As a physician, we've all had days where we saved a life and we did it as part of our job. How about 100,000 lives? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. James Reinertson. Dr. Reinertson heads the Reinertson Group, a healthcare consulting firm based in Wyoming. Prior to that, he was CEO at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, where he was known for his unwavering focus on safety and quality. He is also a senior faculty member at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, where he teaches leadership skills and promotes the engagement of hospital boards in patient safety efforts. Today, we're discussing healthcare leadership from within the hospital and the unique role of the MD in the 100,000 Lives campaign. We're privileged to have you with us today, Jim. Well, thank you, Shira. Tell us first, um, what is the 100,000 Lives campaign, and how did it first come about? The 100,000 Lives campaign was an unprecedented challenge to the American hospital system. Uh, Basically, uh, IHI, through its leader, Dr. Don Berwick, uh, put forward the challenge that said we can reduce uh, preventable deaths in hospitals by 100,000 during an 18-month period. It was the period uh, January 1... 2005 to July 14, 2006, and he basically said if we did six things well, six things we already know how to do, we would reduce deaths by 100,000. These are not people who would live forever. It's just people who wouldn't die during a particular hospital admission, and that's a really important thing to recognize. The six things that Don sort of put out as a challenge to American hospitals were to implement rapid response teams, sometimes called pre-code teams, teams of professionals that can be called to the bedside of a patient who's deteriorating uh, and the nurse is worried about them, before they actually go to a code blue, that is. Another of the six things was a reliable evidence-based delivery of care for acute myocardial infarction, which can reduce the death rates for an acute MI by up to half when a hospital gets really good at delivering all the things that should be done for each patient with an acute MI. Uh, Medication reconciliation was another of the six. That is to say, uh, making sure that when a patient passes from one part of the care system to another, let's say from outpatient settings into the hospital or from the hospital back to outpatient settings, that we uh, true up all of their medication lists, make sure we know exactly what they're supposed to be taking and what the doses are and so forth. That's a big source of problems for patients and for safety. Now, were a lot of hospitals doing this already electronically? or Some were doing each of these activities, but most hospitals weren't doing all of them with the kind of rigor and vigor that we uh, would like. And then finally, there were three sets of things to reduce hospital-acquired infections, ventilator-acquired pneumonia, central line-associated bloodstream infections, and surgical site infections, kind of a bundle of three or four activities which if we did them reliably would dramatically reduce the incidence of those very serious hospital events. So those are the six things that IHI challenged American hospitals to do and said, uh, let's try to do it not, you know, before we retire, but let's try to do it in 18 months. That's what made it a really unprecedented challenge. And that sounded kind of amazing. I could see where smaller hospitals, larger hospitals, they both might have been working on some of these, but ideally perhaps all of them were not working on all of these. These are big, big tasks and challenges. Did you get any resistance from hospitals to take this on, or were they as excited as you were? Actually, it was amazing. Uh, Over 3,000 hospitals signed up to take on this challenge. Something like 80% of all the hospital beds in the United States got involved. Every state in the union, every kind of hospital, from the biggest academic centers to small community hospitals, and everything in between, 
And uh, that, that was really sort of remarkable. The American Nurses Association, the American Medical Association, all of the major associations signed on. There was uh, tremendous support from JCHO and the government and other bodies that care about quality and safety. And in, in, in essence, basically everybody signed on to support this effort. And it was, in that, in that way, really an unprecedented hospital-wide effort across the country. Did you find that certain physicians in certain areas, for instance, you mentioned uh, reducing MI mortality, post-MI care, did those, like the head of cardiology, this was like right in his alley and something he was working on anyhow, did key opinion leaders jump up and take ownership of parts of this project? Uh, In many cases, they did exactly that. Um, This was one of those quality initiatives that doctors really seemed to line up behind much more naturally than others. If you look at at quality initiatives that hospitals have traditionally um, taken up, uh, many times they're framed in ways that don't really engage the doctors. They say, oh, let's reduce length of stay for our patients. That's a classic. I mean, doctors don't get up in the morning one to reduce length of stay. (laughs) Let's be honest about it. But doctors did get excited about the idea of reducing needless harm and death to their patients. This is something that's important to every doctor. And if there's something simple and straightforward that can be done to reduce the likelihood of their patients turning out badly, uh, doctors are all for it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. James Reinertsen, and we're discussing the role of the MD in the 100,000 Lives campaign or how you can make a difference. You know, you mentioned the broad variety of hospitals that are involved in this. Was it more challenging or did any more resistance from smaller hospitals or were they afraid to go public with their numbers? Uh, No, I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, some of our finest results happened in uh, smaller institutions. Uh, I know uh, the courage to do this uh, often came from the examples that uh, smaller institutions had already shown us. Southwestern Vermont the Medical Center, for example, had already reduced its mortality rate 40% using these same methods in the years prior to the framing of the campaign. And it was examples like that that allowed uh, Don Berwick and uh, the IHI leaders and many other hospital leaders around the country to say, if they can do it, why can't everybody do it? Now, tell us a little about the IHI, or the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Why is there such a need for this organization? The IHI is odds-on the most important catalyst for quality and safety improvement in the United States. It basically advocates for and enrolls hospitals and other healthcare systems, doctors' offices. It's not just about hospitals. There are many efforts at IHI to deal with chronic disease care in the community and other kind of significant quality challenges. It enrolls uh, these organizations and the professionals in them in a voluntary effort. It's not a regulatory body or anything like that. It's a voluntary effort to try to improve quality and safety. Basically what IHI does is to bring together two types of science, the science of evidence-based practice of care, which we all read about in the medical journals, and the science that we don't typically read about in the medical journals, the science of improvement, what has been known for years in many forms of manufacturing and other kinds of industry about how processes and systems can be made more reliable, for example. When you bring that science together with the the powerful evidence-based care science that we physicians have created in the laboratories and in the clinics over the years in our research project, that makes a very powerful combination. And what... 
what IHI has done is to bring those two together and catalyze people to work on them. Now, is the IHI, obviously it's staffed by healthcare professionals. Is there consumer involvement in that group also? Well, IHI has patient and family involvement all the way from its board and all the way down into virtually every one of its uh, operations and its activities. <clears throat> IHI very, very strongly has been in front of the movement to get patients and families more actively involved in the, the design of improvements in care. Some of IHI's star organizations, like Cincinnati Children's, have family members, for example, involved in all their rounding activities. So when doctors go on rounds at Cincinnati Children's, if the patient's family, if the child's family is around, they're expected to sort of include the family as they make their rounds, right in the room. It's part of a, a very powerful movement to improve communication with and involvement of families and patients in their own care. And what's some of the responses to that? I would think physicians wouldn't want families involved in those discussions, at least not initially. You're right. I mean, initially, it was some of this wasn't very comfortable. They said, well, we're supposed to be teaching residents. How are we going to do that with the families? And, and it turns out that, that it becomes a very, very important activity. If you talk to the doctors at Cincinnati Children's today, after they've been doing this for five or seven years now, I think it is, they would tell you they'd never go back to the old way. It saves them an enormous amount of time and energy having to then communicate in a second wave to the families about various things. They learn things they would never have learned any other way because families know their kids better than <laughs> the doctors and nurses do. It's actually working out well all around, and there's nothing that should be done with our patients that they don't know about. There's a phrase that IHI has used a lot in, in reference to patient and family involvement, Nothing about me without me. You know, when we're taking care of patients, it's their lives we're talking about, not ours, uh, and they need to be as, as involved and as engaged as they want to be. Now, this has been debated before, but what makes a good physician leader? Or going back to the old axiom, are leaders born or, or are they made? You've worked with a lot of doctors and a lot of hospitals. What have you found? You know, I, I think there are two things that should be said about physician leaders. First of all, if a doctor is going to be expected to lead other doctors, the doctors who are going to be the lead need to have given the mantle of leadership in some way to the leading doctor. In other words, that doctor who's going to be doing the leading needs to have earned the respect of her colleagues or his colleagues in a couple of ways, by being a really fabulous doctor themselves and by being a, uh, a courageous, forthright communicator, somebody who's willing to take on the, the tough issues. And so they've earned the respect of their colleagues. That sort of ability to communicate with good social skills and the courage to stand up for what's right, plus being a, a well-respected physician, clinician in your own uh, field, those are the basic ingredients that you can't really lead other physicians without. I call that the mantle of leadership. But it all boils down to really the combination of two things then. It's what you are, and then the second factor is what the leader knows how to do. I often uh, would tell physicians who would come to me and say, I want to go and get an MBA so that I can be a leader of physicians. You know, I'd look at them and honestly say, I don't think the doctors would let you lead them with or without an MBA. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you haven't been given the mantle of leadership. 
if you've got the mantle of leadership, then getting an MBA might be a helpful additional set of skills. There's no question. What is monovoxoplegia? Did your group <laughs> coin that term? I got that out of one of your publications, and it uh, fascinates me. Uh, I made up that word years ago to describe a phenomenon that's actually not unique to doctors, but it's particularly highly developed in doctors' groups. Monovoxoplegia, it's just a combination of various <laughs> Latin and Greek words to mean... Yeah, well, you fooled me, so... <laughs> paralysis by one voice. So if you're sitting around in a group of doctors, and there are 10 doctors, let's say, and Nine of them really want to try something, and one of them says, oh, I think that's pretty risky, and maybe we ought to wait until there's more data on the subject. They generally won't go ahead. We want to have consensus. It's something that's very strongly developed in us, and so we tend to listen to one strong voice in opposition. I like to say a vote, for for example, in a medical school faculty of 99 to 1 is regarded as a tie. (laughs) Dr. Reinertsen, thank you for being my guest today. I'd like to have you back again and discuss some of the other topics that we've only just begun to hit on, but we've been discussing Doctors Making a Difference in the Medical Community, the 100,000 Lives Campaign. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions on this or any segment, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. We want to hear from you. Thank you for listening.